God's got a plan. We say that phrase, we hear that phrase, we may post that phrase on our social media accounts, but I suspect it's mostly empty. I think it's just words we say. At best, it's an intellectual statement that makes little difference in our day-to-day lives, at least for me. Uh, to say a phrase like that doesn't seem to actually impact my day-to-day life. But who God is and what God has done and what God is doing should radically reshape our everyday lives. And, And I would suggest that that's the way we need to understand God's plan. If you've spent a little time reading the Bible, you've probably come across one of those really strange lists of names. Uh, If you get to Genesis 5, you run into one. If you start in the New Testament, Matthew 1 hits you right from the get-go with one of those. The typical reaction is to wonder why those are there and what good they serve, what purpose they serve, who who do they benefit, and, and is it okay to skip them? The list of names, though, are actually really critical, and they help us to put the pieces of the story into the whole story. They help us read the parts of the Bible as a coherent whole. See, the Bible isn't meant to be read as a series of disconnected verses or books, and I think a lot of us tend to approach it that way. I think the verse numbers tend to make us think of it that way and all the different books. But the Bible is meant to be read as a whole story, and all the parts contribute to that story. So every time we read a list of names, the Bible is urging us to remember the whole story. It's saying, here's where this piece fits in, and don't forget there's a much larger story happening. So these lists of names help us keep track of God's unfolding plan of redemption. That's the story of the Bible, God's unfolding plan of redemption. Now, before we talk about God's plan, let's take a look at this passage here in Ruth 4, beginning in verse 17. So today, we just want to cover verses 17 through 22. It's just this list of names at the end of Ruth. And again, it's probably one of those pieces of Scripture that we might just skip and think there's not much to this other than those of us who have uh, an interest in the historical facts. But there's more to it than just fact. What's significant here is, is theology, what God is doing, what we can learn about God, what we can learn about ourselves. So verse 17, we're told that Ruth has a child, and then in verse 17 we read this, The women of the neighborhood gave this child a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, there's at least three really important things happening in this verse. First, notice that this blessing in verse 17 is about Naomi. Even though Ruth has the child, we read, a son has been born to Naomi. But remember what happened to Naomi in chapter 1. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. But here in chapter 4, God has brought redemption. So chapter 1 begins with death, and chapter 4, the book ends with life. 
And so God has brought healing where there was pain. He has brought life where there is death. And this grandchild changes everything for Naomi. He changes everything for Ruth as well, but it is an interesting feature that the text and these women point out that Naomi is the one who has been given this child. Second, they named him Obed, and Obed means worshiper. And I think this is a way of reinforcing one of the central themes of the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a foreigner, she's a Moabite, and she has become a worshiper of Yahweh. She has become part of the covenant people of Israel. And and that a Moabite becomes part of the covenant people of Israel is really remarkable, and it highlights God's grace. And I think this name, Obed, is a way of saying this person worships the Lord, worships Yahweh. Third, Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, and David is the greatest king in the history of Israel. If you want to talk about the ideal king in the Old Testament, you are always talking about David. That's the way the story is framed. And God's unfolding plan goes directly through David. A Savior will be born out of the house of David. So here's the point. God's unfolding plan is running right through Naomi, to Ruth, to David, to Jesus. Now we'll look closer at that in just a minute, but, but now we need to ask a question. What exactly is God's plan? Put another way, what is the story Scripture is telling? The story of our world, the, the story of reality, the story that you and I are invited to take up and live into. Usually we can summarize this story in four chapters. I think it's a helpful way to think about the big story of the Bible. So chapter one is creation. God burst forth in glory and in love to create the world that we know. And at the end of creation, he declares it very good. And he crowns his creation with humankind and he stamps them with his image. And he puts them into relationship, and he tasks them with caring for and cultivating his good creation. That's chapter 1, and it's beautiful. Chapter 2 in this big story is the fall. Humans rebel from their task, desiring to be independent from their creator. When you eat from the tree, you will be like God. You will not die. He is holding out on you. And this fall... This rebellion creates chaos and destruction in God's creation. Human relations between God, between each other, and, and, and even with creation itself are wrecked. We're told that the thorns uh, are going to pop up and that man will have to sweat to get his food. And then there's this tension between man and woman in, in, in this, the, the, in, in the judgment in chapter 3. And then, of course, they're, they're hiding from God because the relationship has been broken. And sin takes root in creation and it begins to distort and, and bring suffering and death. But right in the middle of chapter 2, in the fall, we get this foreshadowing promise from the Lord. So in Genesis 3.15 he, he promises the coming chapter 3 of redemption. Genesis 3.15, the promise is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
Now, that's a really interesting promise because after all, humans have failed when the serpent tempted them. So how can it be that a seed of a woman, a human, is going to overcome the serpent? But that's the promise. The promise is that one day, one of Eve's descendants will defeat sin, Satan, and death. He will overcome the fall. And this promise that the seed of a woman will overcome the the serpent is a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. So we see it in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God tells Abraham that through him, all peoples will be blessed. In other words, God is going to redeem his creation. That's chapter 3. God will redeem or buy back his creation from sin, Satan, and death. What does that mean to say that God is going to redeem his creation? Probably the best place to go for this is Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, as it describes this. There we read, He has made known to us the mystery of his will. So the mystery, something hidden, but there is this unfolding plan, the mystery of his will, and it goes on, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So this plan has been unfolding, and now according to God's good pleasure, which means his choice, he has executed this plan in Christ. So Christ is the central figure in the activity of God and how he brings his plan about. So the plan for the fullness of time, then the verse ends this way, to gather up all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is the plan? To to gather up all things in Christ, to redeem creation and fill all things with himself, to, to bring all things under the authority of Christ. Here's another way of putting it. In Colossians 1.20, Through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So, so the plan is to reconcile, which means to bring back all things to God, to restore them, to, to bring back the very goodness of Genesis 1 and 2. Now listen, the story of the Bible is not Christ died on the cross so people can say a prayer and go to heaven when they die. It's not the story. The story of the Bible is that in Christ, all things are being brought back from the chaos of the fall, the rebellion is being suppressed, and the true king is taking his seat over the nations and the entire universe. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is what it means to be the church. The church proclaims that this is the way things are. Christ is king. And the individual Christian lives within this new reality. Christ is king. He rules the nations. His cross has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And we are being restored as we learn to live under the present reign of Christ. So to to be a Christian is to understand the kingship of Christ and to understand who sits on the throne and whose plan is coming to bear on our world. 
And then there's a final chapter. So chapter 1, creation, chapter 2, fall, chapter 3, redemption, and then there's chapter 4, restoration. Redemption has begun, and in this life God shapes and forms his church, his people, so that they might conform to the image of Christ. So that's, that's the process of redemption even now. We're, we're in the end of chapter 3. We're seeing redemption come to bear in our world. But we know chapter 4 in Scripture. Restoration is the moment when redemption is not just proclaimed, but completed. It is the moment when the king confronts the entire cosmos, when Christ returns. And, and what happens then? The presence of God, according to Revelation 21, the presence of God floods all of creation, bringing complete and total healing to this world. That's restoration. So you can think about it this way. In Genesis 1, we see God creating this this garden that's full of everything that humans need to thrive and flourish. And, And at the end of Revelation, we see this city where God has created everything that humans need to thrive and flourish and not only created it, but reconciled it to himself and restored its wholeness. So that's the story. That's the plan, God's redemptive plan. That's the story the Bible's telling. Now, how does God carry out that plan of redemption? Well, it begins with that promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And throughout the story of Scripture, conflict surrounds the seed. The seed is in jeopardy in many cases. The continuity of this line from Eve is threatened. We see it threatened actually immediately in chapter 4 as Cain kills his brother. But God restores the line through Seth, which becomes Noah, and that's one of those interesting places where the list of names are given in Genesis 4 and 5 to show what God is doing in the big story. It's sort of mapping it out for us. It's, it's, a, it's a marker on the map of Scripture. That's what those list of names are for. So what we see again and again, every time we're confronted with a list of names, really, we see God sovereignly executing his unfolding plan of redemption. The plan, even though it's jeopardized, is still carried out. Let's go back to Ruth. Verses 18 through 22 is an example of a list of names. And the key to understanding them lies in paying attention to the names, especially where they begin and where they end. So verse 18. Now these are the descendants of Perez. So this list starts with Perez, and that's important. Perez is a great ancestor of Boaz. We'll see Boaz in verse 21 because Boaz is the great-grandfather of David. It's Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. But who is Perez? Well, Perez is someone we meet in the latter part of Genesis, around chapter 38. Perez is the son of a woman named Tamar. Now, here's the fascinating thing about Tamar. Tamar marries one of Judah's sons. And if you know the story of Scripture, you know that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior has, will come from the tribe of Judah. But Tamar marries 
a son of Judah who happens to be a wicked man, and he dies before Tamar has any children. You may recall from the book of Ruth that the law requires that a brother then take Tamar so that she can have children. Well, this brother refuses to give her children. He refuses to do what God's law has provided in this case. He jeopardizes the seed from Judah, and he is rebelling against God, and he also dies. At this point, the promised seed that will crush the serpent is in jeopardy. It does not look like there's going to be any way for this to be carried out. And Judah, her father-in-law, Tamar's father-in-law, is responsible to see that the seed is carried on. But he attempts to shirk responsibility, and by his actions, he effectively cuts off the future seed. But Tamar comes up with a plan. She disguises herself, and she seduces Judah. And she conceives. As Judah is leaving She asks for a token of identification. He agrees. He just wants to get out of there. He doesn't know who she is, and so he leaves. And when news gets out in the community that Tamar is pregnant, Judah, being the family clan leader, is angry. And it's his responsibility to punish Tamar for her actions. How could she possibly be pregnant? She's broken the law. And so he drags her out to be killed. But as she's standing there Being judged, she brings out the token of identification and says, the man who did this to me is the man to whom these items belong. And so Judah's sin is exposed, and Tamar's faithfulness is highlighted. In in time, Tamar has twins. Their names are Perez and Zerah. Now, There's Perez. The story may seem shocking, and careless readings of the Bible will miss the point entirely. They'll twist this into some moral lesson, or they'll they'll talk about um, Tamar's prostitution or something like that. That's just not reading the Bible fairly. That's not the story the Bible's telling in this point. Tamar has shown incredible faith in her actions. As John Wesley said, she believed the promise made to Abraham and his seed particularly the promise of the Messiah. See, the Messiah would come from the house of Judah. God uses Tamar to preserve his unfolding plan of redemption. Then he uses Ruth in the same way. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that one of his descendants will be king forever. And that's an amazing promise. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. It's the promise that goes back to Genesis 3.15. There is one who is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. That's a king. That's one who will rule not just Israel, but all of the world. Now, what else do you know about David? There's a particular place in his life that is extremely scandalous. He commands a woman named Bathsheba to come to him. She really has no choice in this. Again, misreadings of the Bible uh, try to blame her for something, and it's totally misunderstanding, one, how God works in our circumstances, and two, it's misunderstanding the world of the Bible. So she comes, she gets pregnant in an effort to cover her sin, to cover his sin, he, he has her husband killed, 
But in spite of all of that, God preserves his plan of redemption. Bathsheba has a son named Solomon, and it will be Solomon who takes the throne after David. Now, where is all this heading? This is a lot of names and a lot of interesting stories. Well, let's talk about one more genealogy in Matthew 1. It's kind of the the last one we really need to understand here. In Matthew 1, we have this genealogy of Jesus, and and David is a central character in that genealogy, and that's, that's significant because David is the ideal king, and now Jesus being the son of David, is the king who will sit on the throne that, that uh, fulfilling the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. One of the most striking features, though, of Matthew's genealogy is the mention of four women. Here are their names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And we haven't talked about Rahab, but she's another one of those faithful women who preserves the seed. Do you see the thread here with these women and why they're mentioned? The promised seed in Genesis 3.15 is preserved through the lives of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Can you see the big picture, how God is carrying out his unfolding plan of redemption? So the story of Ruth is a critical piece in the big story. Her story is part of the way that God is carrying out this unfolding plan. And as we zoom out after reading the story of Ruth, and we have the whole story of Scripture, we can see that this was one of the critical junctures in God's unfolding plan of redemption. And here is comforting news. The Lord's plans are accomplished despite human failure. Take the case of Tamar, for example. Despite Judah's failure and despite two wicked husbands, Tamar still is part of God's plan. Or how about David, who has this incredible scandal and then resorts to having a man killed? And while we're making this point, God's plans are accomplished despite impossible circumstances. Consider the situation in Ruth. How in the world could her life possibly be redeemed? But it is. See, God's redemption is not just an abstract theory at the large scale. God's redemption is accomplished in the ordinary, everyday lives of people like you and me. So we can say God's plans are accomplished through ordinary people. The way that God is unfolding his story or his plan of redemption in our world calls us into that story, to live into it. That means that the redemption of Christ has massive implications for our lives. Listen to how Paul makes this point in Ephesians 2. He begins by saying, We were dead in our sins and trespasses, captive to Satan, but God unilaterally acted to deliver us through Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't live a certain way to get it. By grace we have been delivered. Then he says this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. That's one reason God has shown us grace, so that his plan of redemption might happen in our lives and our neighborhoods. 
so that we might walk in them, so that we might bear witness to God's goodness, so that we might do these good works that show that Jesus is king. Redemption happens as we live within our new identity in Christ, as we are swept up in God's unfolding plan of redemption, our lives become beacons of God's redemptive activity. They become witnesses of God's unfolding plan of redemption. What would it look like for you to live in the reality that Christ is king? And that you've been swept up into that story. The story of how God is redeeming creation through Christ. What would that change in your life? What what in your life needs to be different? What, What story are you actually living into as opposed to the real story of the way things are? See, it's one thing to say God has a plan. It's something totally different to live a life radically reshaped by the reality of that plan. Can you see the difference? That we can say that we believe the story and all the while we're being shaped by alternative stories. Stories that tell us that we should live in a different sort of way, that we should seek different sorts of things. But when we zoom back and we see the story of God's unfolding plan of redemption and that Christ is king and that we have been swept up into that story to be participants and to be ambassadors for the king, then we have a different story that changes the priorities of our life, that changes how we think about the world, that changes what we do and how we parent and how we work and how we talk and how we watch the news and how we watch, the, how we watch TV and, and movies and how we listen to music. All of these things are, are, are radically reshaped because of the narrative or the story that we are living in. How is your life impacted by these three words? Jesus is king. How does the story, the big story, the real story, change your individual story? Another way to think about this is this. Do you realize who you are in Christ? You are a piece in God's unfolding plan of redemption. He has called you to live into a new story under a new reality with a new identity. And he has planned and orchestrated works for you. Works that will bring him glory. Works that will bring wholeness to your life. And works that will bear witness to King Jesus. That will bear witness to the reality of what God is doing and what God has done. That will bear witness to the real story, to to what is actually true about our world and about ourselves. God does have a plan. That is an accurate statement. And when we see it, for more than just words to put on a bumper sticker or for words to say when we don't know what else to say to someone or for words that we just tell ourselves because we feel like we have to say them, when we see the plan that God is executing, what we call the gospel... It changes everything. 
It changes everything. Life can't be the same because it calls us to enter into a different story. It calls us to shake off the other stories that have formed our lives and to say, this is reality. See, the gospel is not a theory to be believed. It is a reality to be proclaimed and lived. We are to be hearers and doers. All of human history is caught up in the story of how God is redeeming his creation through Christ. And your life fits into that too. The world has alternative stories. It will tell you the story that you should live by is how much stuff you have or the money you make or what people think of you or, or, or the name that you leave behind. Or it will tell you what is important is your sports team or your hobbies or your political party. It will tell you that politics and nations and world events are what matter and that, that you should spend your time thinking about those and being engaged in those. But the gospel says all of history belongs to God, and Christ is king. And so the really practical example of this is rather than wringing our hands when things go wrong, we have to remember the real story of this world. Everything else is subject to Christ. Everything else. Even the most powerful things in our world are subject to Christ. And that, that everything would be subjected to him, that he would be king, that he would inherit the nations, that is the plan that is being carried out. That is reality. That is God's unfolding plan of redemption.